We are going to read the Bible now before Jeremy comes up. We're a church who believes it's God's mission and his word. So please open up with me uh, to Matthew chapter, I need to find it, sorry. Um, chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. It'll also come up on the screen. And it's from the ESV. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The second reading is from Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And you behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to have you with us as we kind of kick off the year at this point in February. And as um, we look at what's before us, and um, as we lay out the vision of what it looks like to be a church that follows Jesus, that believes the Bible and lives it out day to day. And as uh, Kirli has mentioned, where we're starting this week is where we should start, which is with Jesus' great commission, his call for his disciples to be disciple makers. But um, just before we get into the text there, just to double up on um, one of the announcements before, if you haven't yet registered for the 10th anniversary, get in on that, even if you are brand new. It's been so great over the week seeing the RSVPs kind of roll in from past members. And I don't want to theologically overshoot it here, but it's kind of like a little rehearsal for heaven, right? When you get to see all of the brothers and sisters throughout time, through the ages, there in one space, it is a, it is a beautiful thing to see what God has been doing in people's lives. And so it's a great time to reflect back, not on like, what an amazing church we've been and how great are we and all this, but to think on, on how God has demonstrated his grace toward us over a decade. So it's a great thing to get amongst. But today, we're looking at one or really two very short passages. And the message that Jesus has here is reasonably simple and not hard to understand. And yet, the living out of it is everything, isn't it? Have you ever thought about the fact, one, that everyone has a mission for their life, and two that whatever your mission in life is, it will profoundly affect how you view the people around you. High school, if you can remember back that far, which is not that far for some of you and a bit further for others, is a, it is a battleground. It is a war zone. And your mission, if you choose to accept it, well, yeah, it's yours anyway, so your mission is to try and fit in. And one of the things you have to know in high school, the key sort of, I guess, information you need is you need to know Who's kind of the in crowd and who's the out crowd? And the whole thing of navigating high school is trying to work out if you're in or you're out or whether you're a candidate maybe for being in or whether you're out of the in group and who you need to speak to carefully and who you don't and all of this. And all of it leads you to see other people in a very unique way. It leads you to see other people in terms of how is this going to impact me? If I speak to this person, will that make me on the in crowd? 
If I associate with these people, does that sort of put me on the outer? And the whole thing kind of focuses everything back on me. And in high school, it's very difficult for kids to have the maturity to kind of step out of that and, and not think in those kind of terms of me, 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 me. But it's the same in life, even for grown-ups. Whatever is your mission in life will vastly impact how you view other people. If your mission in life is to be successful, it will color how you view other people. You will look at people in terms of whether they're going to further your goals or hinder them. You'll look at people as either someone who could help you on your way or someone who's in your way. If your mission for life is just to live as comfortably as I possibly can, then you'll look at people in that light. Who are the people who are going to add to my life? Who are the people who I feel like maybe would be an inconvenience or kind of be an obstruction in life? But whatever your mission in life is, it will lead you to view people in a certain way and lead you to compare yourself to others in a certain way. I want you, if, you, if you're here this morning and you follow Jesus, I want you to consider this question. Well, how would you view people? How would you see people if you were to adopt Christ's mission towards the world? If you were to hear his command to make disciples, and if that were to be the mission of your life, how would it lead you to view people around you? Because if we see the text that we have this morning, as it really is, as God's scripture and God's word to us, we'll see that if we adopt Christ's mission and purpose to the world, our posture towards other people will be compassion. That that was the heart of Christ, and that's the heart that he calls his people to have. To know that there is one gospel, there is one way to be united to God and find life forever. And as we look out on the world, we are to look at others with deep compassion and to have the heart of Christ. And I'm going to pray that this morning God would do that through us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a loving God, that in love you sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, and that you have made a way back to you. You have made a way through death. You have given us in Jesus forgiveness for sin and a message of salvation for anyone who would believe in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses in this world. Amen. In this passage, Jesus starts with an incredibly authoritative statement. In Matthew 28, starting at sentence 18, Jesus starts by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a massive statement. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like for the 11 disciples to stand before Jesus and for him to declare with all authority that he is the one who rules over everything? That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Just think about what it would have been like to stand before the only human who had ever lived who had defeated death. Just think of the experience that the disciples had had. That in their recent memory was the experience of standing at the cross watching the leader that they had left everything to follow be crucified like a criminal. Imagine how that would have felt for them, witnessing his murder in front of their very eyes. Over this week, I heard an interview, and they were interviewing student, student protesters who'd been protesting in Iran against an oppressive and tyrannous government. And they played the heartbreaking audio of a mother witnessing the execution of her son. It was a public execution. 
And you imagine the experience that that would be like. And think that this is exactly what those disciples went through. That specifically was what Mary experienced. That they had followed Jesus, they believed in Jesus, thought he was the Messiah. And to see him crucified like a criminal, and to stand there helpless. Can you imagine the depths of despair that they would have had? And then to imagine the elation that they would have felt when three days later Jesus rises from the dead and presents him to them, to him, to them alive. And they realize that he really is the Messiah. That he is the one who conquered death. And not only that, but they realize at the same time that it was Jesus who was pierced for their transgressions and their sins. That actually it was their sin that nailed him to the cross. And now it's completely forgiven and washed clean. And Jesus calls them now as his disciples to take this message into the world. Just imagine the level of trust that you would have in Jesus at that moment. Knowing that he is that powerful and that good. And so it's with this kind of authority and weight that Jesus then gives this command. Look what he says going further into the passage. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. They know that this command comes with the full force of Jesus' love and power and authority. When someone commands you to do something, how you respond depends a lot on the kind of authority that they carry, doesn't it? If you, it often annoys us. When, if you're at like an event or a festival and someone's little amount of authority has maybe got them a little bit G'd up and they've got a lanyard and a vest and so they've just, it's all gone a little bit to their head and they start bossing you around it, it gets under your skin because you're like, just, just take it easy, just have a panel and a lie down for a bit. We're all adults here, you can just ask everyone politely. But when someone starts acting a bit authoritatively, when they don't have much authority, it really gets under our skin. But the converse is true also. That when someone who really does have authority commands us, we respond, don't we? I remember being in, I think it's over in Five Dock, and I went to get cash out of an ATM. Now, for some of you who are too young to remember, cash is physical currency that we used to use in exchange for goods and services. And I went to get some of these from a machine. And as I went into the bank, I was kind of lost in my thoughts as I often am and unaware of my surroundings. And as I looked up, I realized that the bank was completely dark and the doors were open. And as I looked through, I could see an officer with her gun drawn. And she, I can't remember if she said, get out. She may have even just done this. And that was enough for me. I didn't, I didn't need a written letter. I didn't need an explanation. Gun drawn, police officer, dark bank. Thanks, everyone. I'm out of here. I'm gone. When someone with authority like that, someone who's clearly an officer of the law, and there's clearly some... I, I still don't know what happened that day, by the way. But someone has, uh, is an officer of the law and has their gun drawn. As soon as they say go, you go. Well, what about Jesus. He stands there, having defeated sin and death, proclaiming that now forgiveness of sins is available to everyone, regardless of your race or ethnicity or where you have been or what you have done. And he says to his disciples, these 11 disciples, not 12, 11, one of them has already betrayed him and betrayed the group. And he says, with, starting with you 11, I'm going to send you out and you're going to take this gospel to the nations. You're going to make disciples of all nations. 
and they hear this command and they do it. And they do it not because they're an amazing group of people. One of the, one of the best things in, re- in reading through the Gospels is just seeing how, how willing the disciples are to record their own flaws and faults. They look foolish in so many occasions. But they go out, not in their own power, but in Christ's power as he empowers them by his Holy Spirit. He says to them, he promises them here, go to the nations, make disciples, and I will be with you until the end of the age. In fact, the book of Acts that we're going to be going through for the majority of this year is all about how Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, continues the mission that he began on earth through his people, through his empowering presence. And it's not because they're impressive people. In fact, one of the first things recorded as these disciples go out and share the gospel is that people whisper among themselves, hey, aren't these guys uneducated men? How are they they talking so articulately about the Bible and about God and all these things? But it's not because they were impressive. It's not because they were educated. It's not because they were powerful. It's simply because they trusted Jesus and he was working through them. So Jesus says, go. And his disciples go. And his people in the book of Acts go. And so the question would be, if Jesus has complete authority and if he commands his people to go, why don't we see more followers of Jesus making more disciples? If Jesus' authority is complete and absolute, if he calls his people to go, why don't we see more Christians going and making disciples? I reckon the breakdown can sometimes be in seeing whether or not this applies to us. One of the first ways this maybe breaks down is people are like, right, I get it. Jesus is completely authoritative. He calls for his people to take the message of the gospel to the nations, to make disciples. But that passage is more about like overseas mission. It's really just, that's, that, that text is the one that you kind of get out each year when you've got missionaries who are going overseas to another context. But if you look at the verses, you can see that it really doesn't apply that way. Because one... The truth is that the disciples didn't go overseas. When Jesus said to them, go, where did they go? To the people directly around them. Over the book of Acts, we'll see that it then goes out from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then further afield. But initially, they they hear his command to go as just to go to those who are near them. Anyone who doesn't know Jesus, to proclaim Jesus to them. But not only that, if this passage were just about overseas mission then the only way the global church could grow is if everybody left their country of origin in order to make disciples in another nation. If Jesus' intention for this passage was just to to go overseas to do mission, then it would mean that in order for the church to grow and to make disciples, I would have to leave to go to another country, they'd have to swap me out and come back here and make disciples. The whole thing doesn't make sense. No, it's clear that the implication is that Jesus is calling us to go to those around us. But then I reckon the second reason might be this. It's what you might call the bystander effect. I think most Bible-believing Christians would say, yeah, this passage, this text of Scripture, it is for today, it is for the local church. It does mean going to the people around you. But while the church generally, even in the local area, should be making disciples, it's not that everyone in the church should be making disciples. To explain the bystander effect, it works like this. There's a principle that if an emergency or a crime is witnessed by a group of people, the larger the group of people, the less likely anyone is to act. 
And the reason for that is, if you're in a big crowd and you see something happen in front of you, you're like, there has to be someone more qualified than me to respond. But if it's just you, you're like, well, I guess it's me or it's no one. And so the, the more you expand the group, the more everyone feels like, yes, someone should do something, but I don't think it should be me. I think the same thing can happen with making disciples, can't it? In the church, everyone's like, yes, I, that would be great. I hope somebody does that, but I don't think it's me. There's got to be someone more qualified or more able. But the truth is, this command of Jesus is here and recorded in Scripture because it's for every single one of us. That actually you are the person who is best equipped to reach the people in your life. That God doesn't need you to be incredibly articulate or have a degree in theology or have studied apologetics or to have all the answers. But just to know him, love him, and be willing to love your neighbor by sharing the gospel with him. You are the appointed missionary for your friends, your family, your neighborhood. Christ has sent you. Because either he has sent every one of us, or in the end, the bystander effect will mean that he sent none of us. But the truth is, his command has called us to all to go. And this matters because oftentimes in churches, it can be the case that this command to make disciples gets neglected. And then in some ways, instead of dealing with that, we're just almost too nice to talk about it. I used to, I used to lead a, a camp, and it involved about 70 leaders. And the way that the money for the camp was raised, that the leaders would pay for themselves to be there and for the resources and everything. And so with about 70 leaders, these camps had a budget of, you know, somewhere north of $20,000. And the whole point of these camps was to reach people. And it was, a, it was a, a massive time away. It was a massive undertaking. And I remember after a couple of years, I, I'd asked one of the guys leading it, because we weren't seeing a lot of people come to know Jesus. And his reflection of it was, he said, well, um, that's true. But actually, it's a really good training ground for leaders. I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. Sometimes, when we're not accomplishing the mission that God has set us out to do, instead of talking about that, we change the mission. And partly because we don't want anyone to feel discouraged or, like, or feel like a failure. And so instead, we, just, we kind of shift the target. In fact, I remember one preacher saying that the way that archery works is you have a target, and then you shoot an arrow, and however close you get to that arrow is however close you got to the goal. And he said the way Christians sometimes do archery is you shoot an arrow, and wherever it lands, you just paint the target around it. And that's how it goes. That oftentimes when mission isn't happening, rather than thinking, all right, what do we need to change? What do we need to do? We just, we just kind of change the mission. Or maybe it's just about us encouraging one another or being Christians who help one another to press on. And all of that is really good. And all of that is what we're commanded to do. We're also called not to forget that we were called to make disciples, to see people go from death to life, to see people come to faith in Jesus for the first time, and that every believer is called to be a part of this mission, is called to be a part of this great work. And not only that, but as we go about Jesus' great commission, that's how we often experience Him working through us, as we depend on Him. And when we adopt Christ's mission towards the world, it transforms all of the Christian life, doesn't it? It transforms how we think about Bible reading and prayer. 
When we aren't on mission and not really looking to make disciples, often whether I read the scriptures and meet with God comes down to like, do I feel like it? Am I getting much out of it? But when you think, man, I'm the appointed missionary to my friends and my family, it presses us into God because it's, it puts us in a zone where we're very uncomfortable and we know we don't have control over all things and we need him to come through for us. Where we need to know the scriptures in order to pass them on and to share the word of God with others. Where we need him and pray before him knowing that we don't have the power to save a single soul and yet he does. And so it transforms how we read scripture and prayer together as a community. It transforms community. When mission is not at the center of what a church is doing, oftentimes community is just about, do I like these people? Do I connect with them? Do I sort of fit here? But I don't know if you've noticed this. Whenever you're doing something really difficult with a group of people, just doing something difficult together actually unites the group. Years ago, we used to take year 12 students over to Fiji on kind of like a, an end-of-year trip where they'd help out in villages and all that sort of thing. And one of the things we'd do is build houses. And when you get over there, uh, there's not a lot of OH&S protocol in the village that we were working in. We'll just we'll put it as simply as that. And so you're moving things like it's 40-degree heat, it's like 6,000% humidity, so it's like a hot bath all the time. But you're lift, we're lifting these corrugated steel sheets. And of course, the corrugated steel is super hot because the weather's hot. So it's, kind of, it's like the worst game of hot potato you've ever played. So you're carrying these sheets but kind of shifting hands in order just to... because you don't have any gloves either, right? And when you're doing that, you're not thinking of the other person at the other end of the corrugated you know, steel sheet being like, hmm, do I really connect with you? I don't know if we can lift sheets of steel together. You just say, whoever's on the other end of that thing, you're my friend and please don't drop it. That's it. But it unites the group. And in the same way, when the church is on mission together, it affects how we do community. Because you're like, these are my brothers and sisters who I need to be there for me as we go about this impossible mission that Jesus sent us out on. It presses us to encourage one another, to pray for one another. Not only that, but it transforms work. Work is not just about a career or furthering your career. That Christ has sent you as a missionary into your workplace. And so it changes the way you view the whole workplace. The people who are there, it's not just divided into the people who can help me, the people who get in my way, the person who's the annoying stop and chat, who kills productivity, the person who's the office pest. You don't think of them like that. You think of these are people that I've been appointed to serve and love and share the gospel with for the sake of Christ. It transforms how we view the workplace. It transforms everything. Christ has called his people to be on mission, to make disciples, and to encourage one another in this mission. And the more you embrace Christ's mission and adopt his purposes towards the world, the more we thrive as disciples. It is the first thing first. And we need to get this, that our mission is to make disciples. But the question would be, what is the motivation for this? What would motivate us to take risks, to want to share the gospel, to put ourselves out there in that way? Well, ultimately, it's to be like Christ and to adopt his posture towards the world. That as we follow him, as he changes us by his grace, and his truth and his spirit, do we become more like him? Come with me now to Matthew 9, 35 and 36. 
Look at what we read about Jesus. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was on mission. He was going about proclaiming the gospel. He was healing people. And when he looked out of the crowds, how does he see them? He sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's not angry. He's not afraid. He's not indifferent. He has compassion. And he has compassion on them because he sees them as people who are lost. As those who are living on the brink of eternity. Of those who need to know their God and Savior. Who need to be reunited with their Heavenly Father. See, if Jesus just looked at them as a bunch of freeloaders trying to get food off him or to see him do a party trick, which some of them were, he just would have been angry. If he saw them just as informants who were potentially going to dob him into the religious authorities and have him tortured and killed, which some of them were, he would have been afraid. If he saw them just as people who really had nothing to do with him and that he was indifferent towards, he would have just felt apathy towards them. But he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. He loves them. How much would it change your life to look on those around you in the same way as Christ? How would it change your life for even a day or a week to see the world exactly as Christ sees it? To see people in their need? See, in the everyday we can get lost in the rhythms of everyday life and forget what it is that you're here for. You were a sent missionary. And we can get caught up in office politics and whatever else is going on around us and see the world the same way everyone else does. I was reminded of this when I was a teacher. That um, it was interesting kind of having come out of high school, studied for a while and then going back into it, just how differently you view the playground. When you're a student, you look at other people, like you know, people who are tough or people who are this or that as like, as someone to be feared and all this kind of stuff, right? When you're living in it, it all feels very real. But as a teacher going back into it, you see the playground completely differently. It's, it's, it's entirely different perspective. And when you go back in as a teacher, you can see that all these kids, the tough kids, the intimidated kids, all the kids really, they're all just scared. That, that tough kid who bullies others is really just insecure. That mean girl herself is just worried about acceptance. That actually all these kids just need help. And when Jesus looks out on the crowd, he looks out on people, grown adults, and sees that they're all just scared. That when it comes down to it, people might look impressive on the outside and like they've got it all together and they're successful and driven and achieve things and this, that, and the other. But beneath all of that, all of us are just dying and scared. And Jesus is the only one who has the answer. The only one who has the power to give life indestructible. And so he looks out on the crowds and he has compassion on them. And after he does this, he teaches his disciples something. Look what he says in the remainder of the passage. It says, he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. See, it's funny, when Jesus says, pray for the Lord of the harvest, you kind of expect him to say, because people are going to be so unresponsive to the gospel. 
because the ground is going to be so hard. Pray that God would soften that territory if he's kind of continuing the harvest metaphor. But he doesn't. He says he prays, not that those outside the church would come, but that those who follow him would go. He doesn't pray for the harvest. He says, pray for the workers, that they would go out into the harvest. He says, the harvest is plentiful. It's the workers who are few. David Platt, a pastor and author, writes this reflection on this passage. He says, why do you think Jesus would look at the crowds around him with all their deep needs and then turn to his disciples and tell them to pray for themselves? The answer is humbling. When Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless multitudes, apparently his concern was not that the lost would not come to the Father. Instead, his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. Jesus' concern is not so much for the world, it's for the church. That they would share his heart and look out on the crowds with the same compassion and go. That they would see that his mission calls them to see those around him and the need that they're in and to go. The thing that overcomes the fear of rejection, the worry about will I say the right thing, is overcoming how will this impact me to start thinking about well, what about them? What happens to them without the gospel? Jesus calls us to pray that we would go. So I'm going to finish with this for our first week. I'm going to pray that this would be our heart as a church. That this year, in our 10th year, would be the year where God, by His Holy Spirit, does a, a new work and would give us a heart of compassion and a vision for this city that we would see it as Christ does, as sheep without a shepherd, and that it would move us to share the gospel in new ways. That we ourselves would see that it's not up to us, that we have this message that has the power to transform lives and save lives, and that it would move us to be a people who are about his purposes in this world. And that as we pray, that we'd see God answer prayers in new ways and ways we haven't seen before. That we'd see God work powerfully as his people step out in faith and trust him, knowing that he is the one who loves people more than we do, and who is more compassionate and more forgiving than we could ever imagine. Let's pray that God would do this work in our hearts. Father, we praise you that you are Lord of the harvest. And Father, we pray that you would empower your church to go out with your gospel and to make disciples. And that before we consider how we might do this, that our first concern would be to pray for ourselves and for one another, that we would be moved to compassion like Jesus. That as we understand your love toward us in Christ, that it would move us to want to share this love with others. And that as we do this, you would be strengthening and building your church and your people, and that you would be bringing many sons and daughters home to salvation. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.